Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints. Episode 32, God's Magician. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, we'll be talking about a saint who brought extraordinary joy to the lives of ordinary people the Italian priest, educator, and magician, Don Bosco. Giovanni, or John Melchiore Bosco, was born on the 16th of August, 1815, near the city of Turin, then part of the northern Italian kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia, which would later swallow up its neighbors and found the modern nation of Italy, but at this time it was only one petty little state among many. John's parents, Francesco and Margarita Bosco, were poor highland farmers who lived in a little stone cottage on the slopes of the Italian Alps. This was a time of great hardship for Italians, in the years just after the Napoleonic Wars. John was born scarcely two months after the Battle of Waterloo, when Napoleon had been finally defeated. Napoleon's French armies had ravaged Italy over the last two decades, overturning ancient Catholic governments, installing shaky secular republics in their place, and despoiling the country of much of its artistic wealth. Which is, by the way, why there are so many priceless pieces of Italian Renaissance arts in Louvre today. Inspired by the atheistic principles of the French Revolution, a number of anti-clerical Italians who had chafed under the old Catholic order joined with Napoleon's forces to ransack churches and spread the ideal of a future without religion, which they viewed as Italy's main obstacle to progress. But these collaborators did little good for the people of Italy. By the end of the wars, much of the Italian countryside had been burned, plundered, and depopulated from all the fighting, and famines and food shortages were rampant. Into the poverty and chaos of this world was born John Bosco. And to make matters even worse, when John was only two years old, his father died. And so the young John and his older brothers had to work hard on the family farm to support themselves throughout their early years. Their mother, a beloved matron known locally as Mama Margarita, strove heroically to raise her sons well in the Catholic faith, modeling a good life for them, teaching them their catechism, and instilling in them a deep love for Our Lady through the Rosary. As little John grew up, he began to hear an ever-stronger call to give himself fully to the faith of his mother. He sensed that God had some special mission for him, even if he couldn't quite say what it was. His calling first began to make itself clearer when he was playing with friends from the surrounding farms. These were a bunch of rowdy boys, not the best behaved, so his mother understandably didn't want him hanging out with them but John wasn't so easily phased. Those boys aren't really bad, he told his mother. They just don't have a good mother like I have. 
and they don't know their catechism, and their parents don't take them to church. When I'm with them, they'll behave better. So he begged his mother to let him keep playing with the local boys, just so he could set a good example for them. She agreed, and soon saw that her son had been right. Under John's leadership, they turned from a gang of bullies into a good group of friends. It was also around this time, still in his early childhood, that John found his flair for the dramatic. In those days, the toilsome lives of Italian peasants were lit up on occasion by traveling entertainers, jugglers, acrobats, and magicians, who brought some colorful fun to the otherwise isolated villages of Italy's mountainous north. John loved to watch them, enjoying the smiles they brought to people's faces, and started to learn their tricks for himself. He became especially adept at magic tricks. Eventually, he started to host his own shows on his family farm, performing as a magician for his neighbors. At these little parties, he would charge no admission, save that everyone in the audience had to recite the rosary. After dazzling them with his magic tricks, the little illusionist would also repeat last Sunday's sermon for anyone who hadn't made it to Mass. All this continued until, at the age of nine, John began to receive more direct instructions from God. One night, as nine-year-old John lay asleep, he dreamed he was being attacked by a mob of other boys who were all cursing and blaspheming against God. Just as he was about to be overwhelmed, the figure of Christ appeared before him and spoke these words. Not with punches will you help these boys, but with goodness and kindness. Then Our Lady appeared in turn, telling John to follow her lead. The vision changed as the boys horribly devolved into a pack of growling dogs. But just as they were about to pounce, Mary held out her hand, and they were transformed into harmless lambs. John was terrified and, of course, confused. What does it all mean, he asked. I'm just a farm boy. What can I do? Our Lady's reply would stay with him for the rest of his days. This is the field of your work. Be humble, steadfast, and strong. When John awoke, the meaning was clear. He was called to join the priesthood becoming a good shepherd for the lost flock of Christ. But there remained a very simple and practical problem. John had no money. Training for the priesthood would require a long and expensive education, but John's family was so poor that he hadn't even been able to spare time for basic schooling. Thankfully, as is always the case when God has a plan for us, help was at hand. Hearing of his plight, a neighboring farmer taught John how to read, write, and do simple math. With the elementals out of the way, John was able to study under a priest in the local countryside. The priest's schoolhouse lay three miles away, and John had to get up early every morning and go to sleep late each night, 
to help his brothers on the farm, at the start and end of each school day. Eventually, his brothers grew resentful, feeling that he wasn't doing his parts, despite his best efforts to ease their burdens. And so his mother gave him his meager inheritance, and sent him to school in the nearby town of Castelnuovo, which today bears the name of Don Bosco, with some good friends of the family. But John was not willing to be a drain on his mother and brothers, so he continued to work as a laborer throughout his schooling in Castelnuovo, doing all sorts of odd jobs, smithing, tailoring, shoemaking, waiting tables, even working in a bowling alley, to send money back to his family. For the next decade he carried on in this way, working and studying to the very best of his abilities, until finally, at the age of 20, he was ready to begin seminary and start training to be a priest. After another six years of study, John was finally ordained a priest on the 5th of June, 1841, being given the priestly title of respect by which he is better known today, Don Bosco. It was then that his true work would begin, caring for the poor and the outcast. His mission began in the slums of Turin, the largest town of the region, where Don Bosco was assigned as a parish priest. This was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in northern Italy, a time when the cities were becoming packed with poor landless laborers working in all the Dickensian conditions you might imagine. Turin, as a center of manufacturing, was becoming a filthy, polluted city, home to many desperate souls. As a priest in the worst neighborhoods of Turin, Don Bosco set about befriending those most in need, showing a special love for the orphans and other poor children who felt alone and unloved. These little children soon began to flock to him, finding in his generous care and warm sense of humor the fatherhood that so many of them lacked. He took a particular concern for boys who had fallen into crime, visiting them in jail and inviting them to join his weekly prayer group, which he came to call his oratory. The boys would meet with him every Sunday, sometimes in a church, sometimes in a chapel, sometimes in a vacant field, to confess their sins, hear mass, and learn about their faith. Then, without fail, Don Bosco would lead them out of the squalid city for a day of adventure and play in the countryside, escape which many of these inner-city kids had never known. During the week, he would often check up on them at the factories and shops where they worked, making sure they were still doing well and doing good. After five years of ministry, Don Bosco had finally gathered the funds to buy a permanent home for his oratory, a little urban lot in a neighborhood of Turin called Valdococco, with a ramshackle hut for a chapel, which Don Bosco consecrated to his favorite saints, St. Francis de Sales. You can still visit this oratory, 
now adorned, expanded, and reconsecrated as the Basilica of Our Lady Help of Christians in Valdococo today. But don't go expecting a rundown shack. It's been lavishly rebuilt since its early days, with a Baroque edifice and plenty of beautiful arts. According to a vision which Don Bosco later received from the Mother of God, the church was built on the sites where the three patrons of Turin, Saints Solutor, Octavius, and Adventur, had met their martyrdom in Roman times. Today it houses not only their relics, but also the tomb of Don Bosco himself. By this time, Don Bosco's oratory had drawn over 500 boys from the slums of Turin, and soon the good priest began to expand his ministries to include a full-time orphanage at a trade school. His mother, Margarita, had since come to live with him in Turin, and she proved instrumental in these lasting projects. The orphanage, for instance, began on a rainy evening in 1850, when Don Bosco and his mother heard a knock on their door. When they answered it, they found a ragged little boy drenched from the storm, who explained that he had lost his family and had nowhere else to turn. Mother and son took him in as their own. Others would soon follow, with the Bosco residence becoming a refuge for children in need. Soon they took up the education of these orphans, and other children who sought their help, by starting a permanent trade school, where Don Bosco himself and two other teachers would give them the skills they needed to support themselves. It was during this experience of running an orphanage-turned-school that Don Bosco developed one of his most famous legacies, the so-called preventive system of schooling, which is still used in education to this day. The basic idea, as I understand it, is to prevent vulnerable children from turning to unhealthy ways through the guidance of a mentor, who helps them to avoid bad influences, rehabilitate them from bad habits, and lead them to better alternatives. This may sound fairly obvious today, but at the time it certainly was not. The prevailing theory of 19th century education being that teachers should be feared rather than loved, and should have little more involvement in their students' lives than to drill them in lessons and to beat them for misbehavior. And frankly, it's not like the secular progressive education of the 20th century has done much better by going to the other extreme, failing to teach children much of anything and indulging their worst behavior. So I think there's still quite a lot to be said for Don Bosco's mentorship method, as a happy medium between those two approaches. As a teacher myself, I'd certainly like to learn more about the example of Don Bosco the Educator. But by far the largest legacy of Don Bosco's life was the religious order he left behind him. The Order of St. Francis de Sales, better known as the Salesians of Don Bosco. The mid-19th century was not a pleasant time to be a priest, nun, or devout Catholic layperson in Italy. Not only was the Industrial Revolution overturning traditional ways of life in the North, 
But political revolutions were spreading chaos all across the peninsula, as the three-headed serpents of modern ideology, liberalism, nationalism, and socialism, tore apart the old pre-modern order. The end result of all these riots, rebellions, coups, assassinations, and wars would be the unification, or rather, conquest of Italy, by the ruling house of Piedmont, the country in which Don Bosco was born. It's a long story, this so-called Risorgimento, and it deserves a full telling another time. But the upshot for our story today is that many of the liberals, nationalists, and socialists who were fighting for radical change in Italy shared a common hatred of that greatest symbol of unchanging eternity, the Catholic Church. The Church came under constant assault throughout the 19th century. Many religious orders were stripped of their ancient rights and properties, and even the popes lost the papal states, which they'd held since the 8th century. As the Church lost her lands, she lost the means to continue her widespread works of charity, and so the vast social safety nets, which had been sustained by the Church, fell into oblivion, right at a time when many Italians needed that safety net more than ever. So when, in 1859, Don Bosco and his friends, including several of the boys he had himself raised and educated, decided to found a new religious order devoted to serving the poor, they were making a very bold move against the torrents of the times. This new order would make permanent all of the work which Don Bosco had been carrying out during his last two decades as a parish priest, and it would allow him to expand his ministries beyond the slums of Turin to help children in need elsewhere. After a great deal of planning, organizing, and networking, the Salesians, as they came to be called, were officially recognized by Pope Pius IX, also known in Italian as Pio Nonno. Don Bosco would spend the rest of his life building up this order, which came to include priests, nuns, and worldwide missionaries. By the time of his death in 1888, the Salesians had brought their schools, orphanages, and missions from Italy to South America, and they would continue to expand in the following decades to many other parts of the world, including India. As he grew older, Don Bosco continued to work with the same fervor that had sustained his earliest ministries. So much so that even Pope Pius IX begged him to retire and let others continue his work. But Don Bosco would not relent, replying to the Holy Father, First tell the devil to rest, then I'll rest too. He kept himself busy with constant work, adding scholarship to his already impressive list of endeavors. He wrote books on literature, math, scripture, and history, including a complete history of Italy, from the fall of Rome to his own day, in addition to a monthly newsletter on the Catholic faith. All the while, 
He never stopped preaching, hearing confessions, and saying mass as a parish priest. He was known for his devout prayer life, famously making even wealthy and powerful visitors wait whenever he was kneeling before God, and for his personal poverty, spending all he gathered on his ministries and scarcely keeping a penny for his own needs. Looking back on his life as an old man, he once remarked, I am poor, penniless Don Bosco, a shepherd boy of the hills. I have lived poor, and I shall die poor. All this while he was able to collect millions for those in need. As he neared the end of his earthly life, miracles began to manifest around him. Don Bosco found himself able to cure the sick, heal the deaf and the lame, and even bring a dead boy back to life. These miracles were so well attested by so many people in the skeptical 19th century that Pope Pius IX was led to say, In Don Bosco, the extraordinary becomes ordinary. But the ordinary always remained his focus. Holiness is easy, he used to tell his students, offering them a simple formula for sanctity. First, be happy. Second, study and pray. Third, do good to everyone. It was in their common lives that his followers would find their own paths to heaven. At long last, in December of 1887, Don Bosco's lifelong vigor began to leave him. He took to bed that winter, saying, Now I go to rest. I shall not get up again. By the end of the next month, he was with God. On the 31st of January, 1888, Don Bosco passed away during the morning Angelus prayers. His final words were the names of Jesus and Mary. It was quite clear to those who had known him that Don Bosco was a saint, and it did not take long for his cause to be declared. On the 1st of April, 1934, he was officially canonized by Pope Pius XI. Don Bosco has gone down as one of the best-loved saints of the modern era, not only for the legacy of his Salesian order, but for the personal example, he said. I've found his story more moving than those of many saints I've covered, perhaps because of how normal and down-to-earth it seems. He really was just an ordinary man, living in an ordinary place, who simply went beyond all ordinary expectations to serve others. We can learn a great deal from his simple humility, his willingness to serve others in very basic and everyday ways, his tireless devotion to our Lord in the Blessed Sacraments and Our Lady Help of Christians, and, of course, his great sense of humor. St. John Bosco is commemorated on the 31st of January, the day of his death, in the Catholic Church. He is the patron of children, students, 
juvenile delinquents, apprentices, editors, publishers, and magicians. If you'd like to learn more about Don Bosco, and foster your own devotion to him, then as always, I've included links in the show notes to prayers and other resources. There you'll also find our Patreon, where you can support the show, and my email, where you can suggest future episodes. If you enjoy the show, please don't hesitate to let others know about it. Spread the word about what we do. Even in the age of the internet, word of mouth remains the simplest and I think the best way of getting information out there. And the easiest way you can help us out without any cost to yourself is simply to tell your friends and family about the show. May St. John Bosco, God's Magician, come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Thank you.